0: Hey everyone, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place to explore faith in Jesus. And in today's video, we are going to explore the question, did this really happen in the Gospel of John? Stay tuned for more. Hey everyone, welcome back. My name is Lucas. If we haven't met, um, I am one of the pastors here at Evangel Church. We are a physical location church in Powell River, British Columbia. And if you live in this region, uh, we would love to invite you to one of our in-person gatherings. We do gather every Sunday, 10 o'clock AM here at the church on the corner of Joyce and Manson. But if you're joining us from out of town, uh, welcome. We're so glad that you're with us, hanging out with us today. And i hope that this is adding value to your faith journey and so we're going to jump in but we're going to jump into a little bit of controversy today Uh, we need to kind of address some of what's going on as we jump in we're in a series called the gospel of john we're kind of going uh verse by verse through the gospel of john and now we come to this kind of moment in john's gospel and and i say that in quotations because this is a bit of a controversial moment so Bear with me as I explain that and we'll kind of walk out uh, a little bit of what's going on here. Now, before we do, I want to put your minds at ease. There are some passages, verses, and words that are debated among scholars as they look at the history of the Word of God coming together, the canon. We call that the canon, the collection of library, essentially, of books that we call our Bible. Now, keep in mind, the Bible isn't... Uh, written by one individual, per se. It's it's a contribution of many different authors, all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so there's this doctrine and idea of the inerrancy of Scripture, that Scripture is without error. It's it's authoritative. It's truth. But as we kind of dig into this, we understand that as we look at the history of Scripture, there are some debates on what should be in and what should not be in, the canon, this library we call the Bible. Now, though this is the case, though there's these arguments and debates on different kind of things, it does not in any way take away from the core foundational doctrines of the church. Every core foundational belief in the church and the biblical worldview is uh, without debate. It's without question in terms of its authenticity, and, and history, and so just, just I want you to just be at ease as we kind of explore this reality when it comes to uh, verse uh, chapter seven, verse 52, going to eight, chapter eight to verse 11, because there's some debate on this. Now now that you're nervous, <laughs> now I want to talk to you about this kind of moment that we come to, and it might, it might very well be one of your favorite stories in the New Testament. Uh, because it is a beautiful story it's it's a story of God's grace and his mercy and his um, just how strategic and brilliant he was in dealing with some uh, hard issues but it's the woman caught in adultery it's the story of the woman that was caught in the adultery so if you open your Bibles uh, many of you'll see this story this moment if you're in the ESV you'll see the English standard version you'll see that it's actually this whole kind of passage is in brackets and it has a bit of a disclaimer and it'll say something along the lines of this passage is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now if you're in the NIV, you'll see that this is actually italicized and it's starred and italicized and it'll have a similar kind of disclaimer when it comes to this moment. If you're in the King James Version, I don't think there's really anything there. Uh, maybe New King James Version. I didn't look at all the, all the translations. But you're going to see that there's, you know, there's this like, little kind of thing in the SV, the NIV, some of the Bible translations saying, Hey, uh, you need to be aware that this was not actually in the earliest manuscripts that we have record of. Dr. Chris Keith. He writes, Interestingly enough, the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John do not contain this beloved passage. Indeed, the first manuscript to contain the story is from around 400 CE or AD. Around 4% of Greek manuscripts that include the passage place it in locations other than John one8 8 to 11. John 1, sorry, John 8, verse 1 to 11. The earliest of these is from around the 9th and 10th centuries. This perplexing manuscript history fuels debates about whether the story was originally in John's gospel, and if so, where. The other other kind of knock against this moment in the gospel of John is the fact that it doesn't kind of feel like it fits here. Um, There's an argument that perhaps even if it's supposed to be in John, that maybe they placed it in the wrong place because... If you look at kind of the progression of Jesus' teaching in Revelation here, he's going from, I'm the bread of life, right? We've talked about that. Into, I'm the living water. Anyone who thirsts, come to me. And then if you skip ahead to 8 verse 12, he calls himself the light of the world. And so you see this nice kind of progression, this nice flow of idea of Revelation, of teaching but in our in our translations, we see kind of this abrupt sort of injection of this story in this passage. And so there are some scholars that would think that this is actually in the wrong place in John, um, but perhaps not uh, needing to be taken out of John. So there's a lot of debate here. I just want to be right up front with you on the debate from a scholarly historical kind of precedent. Now, in the pursuit of accuracy of ancient, any kind of ancient literature, the closer you get to the time of the writing, the more authoritative it is as being seen as original. And so the problem with this passage is we don't see the first kind of iterations of this moment until about 400 years after uh, Christ's life. So this is a few generations removed. And uh, we don't really see it kind of narrow down into this place in John until the 9th to 10th century. So when we're looking scholarly and we're looking at the history of the word, we're looking to to see this in the the earliest manuscripts that we can. and, And we don't actually see it there until about the 4th century. So as we explore this story, the implication is that we have to We we can't just simply ignore all of these facts and pretend like there's nothing wrong with this just being inserted. We have to then be a little bit more deliberate in how we judge this portion of Scripture. So this portion of Scripture has to be filtered through the rest of Scripture. Those those passages and those authoritative uh, apostle writings... That give us an insight, and we filter through that, and we make sure does it line up? Does it line up in the right way? And so that's kind of what we have to do with this. We got to take it with a bit of a grain of salt and be a little bit more um, critical as we look at this passage. But again, these moments of debate they don't undermine our faith. They don't undermine the inerrancy of Scripture. Because, again, we're being thoughtful about the Word of God. That's what we're called to do as noble Bereans. But it does not undermine any fundamental, foundational teaching of the Christian faith. So rest at ease. But with all of that said, let's jump in. I'm reading from the ESV, which has the brackets around this. But let's jump in. So we're going to start essentially chapter 7, verse 53, and then going to 8 to verse 11. They went each to their own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people who came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Well, Lord, as we open your scriptures today, we know that this is not simply an intellectual exercise. That, Lord, we are all active participants in the preaching of your word. That your Holy Spirit is the one that leads and guides us in truth. A living revelation of your word and what it means for each and every one of us. So, Lord, we invite you into this process of unpacking your word together in community. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we approach the scripture, we can't just simply kind of throw it out entirely. You know, the Jewish culture was one of oral tradition. What what I mean by that is much of their history and their understanding of what had happened was passed down by speaking it, by storytelling. And they were very particular about how they did this. The Jewish culture demanded accountability to accuracy when it came to the oral traditions of their journey and their existence. And so... We can hold kind of a a bit of a high expectation that even by the 4th century, if this had happened and there was an oral tradition among the Jewish people speaking of this moment, that by the time a scribe, if a scribe added it later, that it was kind of, um, it was an accurate representation in terms of how the people told the story. So, even though in some ways you don't see it in the early manuscripts, there is a case to be made that perhaps this is um, an accurate description that was passed on orally and then added into John's gospel at a later date. Either way, we're going to walk through it critically and with, with a bit of a, a bigger, wider eyes to kind of see what's going on here. But it's a beautiful story. Uh, we have to ask the question, does this, does this kind of buck against the uh, filter of the rest of Scripture. And, and in my opinion, I don't believe it does. And so we're going to dig into it and un, kind unravel of a few things here. So, so with that preamble and caveat, let's ju- jump into the account here. The Jewish leaders having been conspiring to see Jesus killed, but, but they need to find a way to justify his murder. They need to find a way to justify um, them bringing him to a place where he is judged. Uh, with a with a capital kind of crime. And they fear the recourse of acting rashly. so they're seeking ways to paint Jesus into a corner and have him kind of hang himself, so to speak. So here they kind of go to a bit of an extreme. Nothing else has been working. And so here they kind of really go to a bit of an extreme. and this woman is caught in adultery and they bring her to Jesus. Now, It's it's important to note that they're already off track. If they really are about uh, serving the law, they would have brought, according to the Levitical law, as well as the descriptions in Deuteronomy, they would have brought both the adulterer and the adulteress to this moment. But here we see they're already off the mark. They just simply bring the woman who's caught in adultery. And, and in, this, in this, they miss the heart and the spirit of the law. But as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus reveals it. And this becomes a battle that we, we kind of each face. We, we must see kind of the individual. They, they missed the individual, this woman. And all that they saw was her sin. All that they saw was the opportunity to leverage her brokenness to condemn Jesus. So she becomes an instrument. She becomes a tool for their own means. Here's the deal, friends. We have to be so careful that we, as people in the church, those serving God, that we don't look around and see sin and brokenness without first seeing the individual, seeing the person, knowing their name. Uh, William Barclay has a great account from uh, Dr. Turnier. (laughs) And he sums up kind of this approach to this broken moment. He says, Dr. Turnier insists that this is proof that the Bible thinks of people first and foremost, not as fractions of the mass or abstractions or ideas or cases, but as persons. The proper name, Dr. Turnier writes, is the symbol of the person. If I forget my patients' names... If I say to myself, ah, oh, there's that gallbladder type, or that there's that uh, consumptive that I saw the other day, I am interesting myself more in their gallbladders or in their lungs than in themselves as persons. He insists that a patient must be always a person and never a case. And here's the, re- here's the moment we see people... Um, the the religious rulers are seeing this woman in in light of her brokenness. They're seeing her as the broken one, the the one caught in sin. All they see is her sin. They don't see that the law leads to redemption. Jesus does. They don't see that this brokenness brings shame. They, They don't care about her shame in this moment. They're simply leveraging her as an instrument to their own means. And we can do this in the church, friends. We can can leverage the brokenness of others to prop ourselves up, to feel better about the way that we're living. And we can lose sight of their name and their story and their pain. And it just makes us feel better not to have to delve into that. Friends, we need to know one another's names and our stories beyond just our brokenness. And this is what Jesus reveals to us in such a beautiful way. The moment we see people in light of their sin and not their name, we have moved from the spirit of God into the spirit of the legalist. And this is, this, is, this is easy. I have to admit, like there's moments and times where I do this. This is our default as human beings. And we have to really catch ourselves. Jesus saw the individual and was moved to compassion. This moment's no different. Here he becomes her advocate, her savior, and the one who ultimately forgives her. This is the way of Christ. And so because this is the way of Christ, we have to take note of how he approaches this moment. Because he doesn't see the adulterous woman. He sees her. He calls us to the same. It was the practice of the Jews to bring cases like this before a rabbi. Uh, If there was any question on uh, how to uh, judge it. Uh, how to proclaim sentence over it, they would bring it to a rabbi who was a teacher among them, and they would ask the question, they would present the case, and then they would ask the question in terms of what's the judgment, how do we theologically, uh, according to the law, walk out this process? And so this wasn't new, this is a part of the culture, but they bringing this particular instance to Jesus because it has some entrapment moments built into it. So here's the deal. The law states that she is to be executed for her sin, okay? when you, If you're going to take the law, the Old Testament law, the Levitical law, uh, not just her, but also the adulterer that was with her. Now, notice he's not there right now. It's just her. There's, they've already messed it up. Yet, yet, even though that's the case under Roman occupation, so remember, the Jews at this time are under Roman occupation. The the Roman law is is greater, in terms of the way the Romans see it, than the law of the Jews. And so what happens is the Jews have actually been stripped of their right to execute anyone. Execution has to be done under Roman law and the Roman system of law. The Jews cannot um, unilaterally make any decisions in terms of execution. So here... These these religious rulers are kind of trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Either uphold the law of Moses or sentence her. And now you are under breaking the Roman law. So either way, they're hoping that they're going to turn the crowd against Jesus. They're going to get the crowd on their side so they can more easily conspire to get him out of the picture. And of course, this is happening in public. Uh, they, they have the crowd around. They have the Roman authority around. And here's what Jesus does in verse 6 of, of chapter 8, 6b. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, this has to be one of the most mysterious moments in all of the Gospels, maybe all of Scripture. Everybody wants to know. What is Jesus writing? That's the million-dollar question here. That's the question I'm sure all of us are going to like think in our minds that we're going to ask Jesus when we get to be with him one day. What did you write in the sand? Now, the most popular thought here is that Jesus bent down and began writing out the sins of the men around him. So they're accusing her of her brokenness, her sin. And the, the, the most popular thought is that he's down and he's writing their sins in the dirt. And um, man, I uh, I hope that's true. Like that feels like the most boss thing to kind of do. I, I really hope that that's kind of the case. Um, but I think that perhaps it was more subtle than that. No, Notice they brought Moses back into the conversation here. They refer to the law of Moses. Yet You have to ask the question, how did Moses receive the law? I want you to think of the picture of Moses in the Old Testament receiving the law that he brought to the people. What happened? The finger of God came and wrote the Ten Commandments into the rock, into the tablets. The very finger of God wrote out the law into the commandments that Moses then brought to the people. The origins of truth, the standards of holiness, they're found in, in the person and the character of God. And in this moment, perhaps, Jesus bends down and begins to write those commandments out with his finger. This, this picture of his deity, this positioning, that he himself is even greater than Moses who brought the law. Because the Moses who brought the law really got it from the finger. Of God. You see, the religious rulers were looking to Moses as their precedent in this moment, and perhaps Jesus, in bending down, this picture of his finger drawing in the dirt, correlating to the moment the finger of God wrote out the law, causes us to think no, we need to look not to a man, but to God. Now, I don't know why it is, but we as human beings, we have this tendency. To look to leaders among us to point us to truth, rather than going to the source of truth. I mean, it goes all the way back to Israel in this moment where God, through through the prophets and the judges, was leading Israel. But Israel was discontent with that, and they said, "We want a king." And they looked to this man Saul, this tall guy, this guy that looked like a leader, kind of, um, kind of, kind of had all the quintessential leadership qualities as far as they could see from the outside. And they wanted this king and they weren't content with God just being their leader in this moment, in this season of the life of Israel. But we do the very same thing. We have this access to knowing God. We have this access to his word. And yet we defer so often to the leaders around us as as our source for truth. You know, there was a season in the church when... Uh, the, the the everyday person did not have access to the word of God. Unless you had a particular education, unless you knew the language, unless you had access to a copy of the scriptures, you had to defer to people who would interpret it for you and, 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 and would kind of... Um, Bring kind of the, the word of God to you in a layman's kind of term. But the problem is these interpreters of scripture began to twist things. They created traditions that were kind of loosely substantiated by theological claims. And, and people suffered in these seasons of the church. Wars were fought. There were gross miscarriages of justice that, that stained the very history of the church. All because we look to the leaders among us. You know, the Great Reformation, though it was not perfect, um, it brought us into an era of accessibility. People shed their blood for the ideal that every person should have access to the Word of God that reveals the character and the personhood of God. And yet, we live in a society today that is so biblically uh, illiterate. And we turn to pastors and leaders to feed us spiritual truth, when really a pastor and a leader was never meant to feed you. They were only meant to supplement what you're already feeding on. We have access to the Word of God. And, and, and in this moment, we're reminded not to look back to Moses. Jesus reminds them you need to look back to the source that Moses looked to. In this day and age, we can't look to celebrity pastors The the people on TV. We, We need to allow those to simply supplement what we've already been digesting as we get into God's word. As we get into God's presence. As we know him intimately in our own lives. And in this moment Jesus bends down. And he's writing in the sand the very words of God. Revealing himself as the source of that truth and that authority. Saying come to me. Through the words of God, come to me. And whatever he wrote, it impacted those around him. There's no mistaking that. In verse 7, it says, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Notice what Jesus does here. They think they've got him. He, he's, he's between the rock and the hard place. They've set this thing up so beautifully. Yet Jesus simultaneously, he upholds and affirms the law while putting its sentencing back into the hands of those around him. I, I love the way the rest of this moment kind of plays out. I can just picture this mob and they're holding these, these stones. And one by one, from the older to the younger, they slowly just drop the stone in the dirt. and You're hearing these, these thuds in the dirt. And these men walking away for what they thought was a perfect setup. Now the account says that it started with the oldest among them and then went down to the youngest. And I think there's perhaps two reasons for this. Now, the first is the oldest probably had a greater wisdom and insight in this moment into this sort of jiu-jitsu reversal that Jesus just pulled on them. And so maybe they caught on early. Oh man, we're in trouble. He's not as painted into a corner as we thought. But I think more profound than that, you know, the longer you live on this earth, the more self-aware you become of your own brokenness. And the longer you live on this earth, the more mistakes you make. And uh, the more shame and guilt you can kind of build up. And I think to some degree the older to the younger is just an expression of this this guilt, this self-awareness of one's own brokenness. And perhaps in this moment they began to see this woman not just as the adulterous woman, but as actually a representation of themselves. So they leave until only Jesus and the woman remain. Now... In this moment, I want you to kind of consider this woman. I want you to consider not, you know, the heading in your Bible might say, Jesus and the adulterous woman. It's already kind of got this label over this woman. But I want you to think about this woman as an individual. Um, She's more than the adulterous woman. In fact, the point of the story demands that we not label her by her worst moment. That's what Jesus is about to teach us. The power of this scene is Christ saw her. And we need to see her as well. And I want you to put yourself into her shoes. You know, the shame of being caught in the very act of adultery. uh, The fear of knowing what these men were planning to do to her in terms of sentencing. the, the, The build up as they surround Jesus and ask his His opinion as a rabbi as to how to sentence her. How to judge her in this moment according to the law of Moses. And so I want you to consider this woman in her shame, in her brokenness, in her fear. In this public moment. Heartbroken. Not knowing if she even has a future ahead of her. Can can you relate to that? I know I can. Seasons and moments, I know that I can. Now, we don't know what happens to this woman. But I believe that that's the point. Because, friend, you and I are this woman. Her her story is our story. We don't know what happened to this woman. But we can play out how this story ends in us. We are this woman caught in our brokenness, confronted with our shame, the guilt and the consequences of sin before us. William Barclay writes, When the Methodist evangelist George Whitefield saw the criminal on the way to the gallows, he uttered the famous sentence, There, but for the grace of God, go I. There, but for the grace of God, go I. We can empathize with this moment because a death sentence has been de- declared over every single one of us. At that time, that moment, that, that falling away in the Garden of Eden, a death sentence was declared over humanity. And yet in this beautiful kind of moment, there's a moment of an exhale that exists for this woman as Jesus comes as her advocate as jesus comes not as her condemner but as the one who will forgive her now there's some arguments coming back to this idea of whether this story is part of the gospel of john or not there's some arguments that perhaps this moment in the gospel of john what jesus is about to do uh cause scholars and those writing Uh, The the scribes to remove it because they felt perhaps it it, it kind of spoke to a bit of a Gnostic gospel, this idea that uh, we are just in our bodies, we're sinful, uh, there's always going to be forgiveness no matter what we do, no matter what decisions we make. And so perhaps uh, one of the arguments is it was removed early because of the fear of how this would be taken, how Jesus' kind of uh, interaction with this woman could be taken in in the life of the church. But though, though this is this is just a theory, it doesn't fully make sense in light of what Jesus actually is recorded as doing right here. I want you to just dig into this with me. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more more. Jesus invites this woman into a new and fresh standard of living. Here he reveals his mercy, his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. You know, there is a path um, that repentance demands of us. One that leads us to a change in the way that we live our lives. A coming into alignment with the way of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles. Repentance isn't just about forgiveness. It's about exploring and walking in a new trajectory. A new way of living that is modeled to us and taught to us through Jesus' life and the teachings of the apostles. But but it's, it's important to note that Jesus is not just simply suspending judgment here over this woman or over us. He's not suspending judgment. That, that doesn't fit our understanding of the final days and what is yet to come. Rather here, he defers his judgment that in itself is a mercy and a grace that Christ affords each and every one of us. He's deferring his judgment. I, I don't know about you, but I was not the greatest student uh, in school. In fact, uh, there were a number of classes that I failed, um, hang my head in shame, and in, in right into grade 12, there's a class that I failed that caused me not to be able to graduate with my graduating class, and I had to end up taking summer school to get my high school diploma. But, but here's the deal, Wouldn't, can you imagine a world where, where grade 12 concluded, and, and wherever you were at, whatever your outcome, you were judged at that point and that point alone right? Condemnation. I was judged. I'm not going to get my high school diploma. That's it. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Can, can you imagine a moment like that in someone's life? How debilitating that could be. But, but teachers, they, they often give out what? Extra credit, extra assignments that you can kind of try to build up your, uh, your score in that class. Um, for me, my saving grace was summer school, Right? And so there was a deferring of judgment in terms of how I could then get to that graduation moment. It wasn't perfect, but I got there. Jesus has chosen to defer his judgment over each and every one of us in this era that we live in of grace and mercy to discover that in him we are forgiven. And also in him, we're offered a grace and a strength to live life in a different way. To see his truth, to see his way, to see him as the authority on how to live out the best life we can. Because he's the one who created us. So if he's designed us, he knows the optimal function of each and every one of us. And so we see this era of grace where Jesus... And God the Father have decided to defer judgment for each and every one of us. And he gives us opportunity to come before Christ and know forgiveness. As we invite Jesus into our story, into our lives. And he forgives us and his mercy and his grace is extended to us. This this woman we read about is not the adulterous woman. She is the forgiven woman. We don't know the rest of her story, as I said, but perhaps that is the point. We are finishing out her story because we are that woman caught in our brokenness, caught in our sin, and yet Jesus, in our moment of shame, in our moment of guilt, in our moment of being exposed, instead of condemnation, he brings mercy and forgiveness. And he defers judgment and, and gives us time to repent. And by repent, changing the way and the trajectory of our lives. Our behaviors and the way that we see the world around us. And begin to filter that through the word of God. Through the ways of Jesus. Through the teachings of the apostles. Does anyone condemn you? <laughs> Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Lord, we thank you for this moment of grace lord we don 't know if this was if John wrote this or if this was added later but lord we 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 affirm that this this is in line with your character, your life, and ministry as we know it to be. We know that this doesn't uh, counteract any other teaching that you have in scripture, and so Lord, we like to think that this happened that this moment of grace and mercy. This picture of judgment deferred, this moment of this adulterous woman becoming the forgiven one, becoming a daughter of God. Lord, we 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 thank you for this picture. And Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, you would convict us. That you would, Lord God, in our shame, that you would you would reveal Jesus, the, the face of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, Jesus as our advocate. Jesus is the one who stands against an angry mob in our defense because he's merciful and full of grace. And so Lord, just as this woman, Lord, may we carry out this story of not being condemned by you, of receiving your forgiveness and your grace, but Lord, also receiving your grace to live life differently to give up those areas and those broken places of sin and selfishness. And Lord, of of changing the trajectory of our lives and pursuing those things modeled by your life and your teachings and the teachings of the apostles. Lord, we pray for your grace in that journey. We thank you for your judgment deferred. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to turn it over for a few announcements of just the life of the church and what's coming up. And there's some exciting ones in there. So stay tuned. God bless you.
1: Hey church, thank you so much for all of those who have bought into the idea that faith community works best when we each use our gifts and talents to serve one another and glorify God. But guess what? There is still room for you. We have so many teams that actually don't have enough people to function. And we know that you are sitting here and you have the exact gift and talent because God has placed you in this church for a reason.
2: Well friends, I'm so excited to invite you to a really exciting Sunday on September 12th. We are having a Baptism Sunday and picnic on that day. So we're going to be having a shortened service that's going to be about an hour long. And then all of us are going to head over to the beach at Shingle Mill to watch people take that next step in kind of sharing about what Jesus has done inside their life to a group of believers uh, and making that commitment. And so we want to invite you to that. Uh, Bring your picnic items, bring some lunch because we would love to see you there.
1: Here at Evangel Church, we believe that we are blessed to be a blessing to Powell River. And one of the ways that we do that is our annual trunk or treat. So this Halloween, we are going to invite the children of Powell River to come here to our parking lot to get their candy. And you can be a part of that as candy starts going all over the grocery store shelves just pick up an extra box or two and drop it off at the office and that will help us make the goodie bags that we will pass out on halloween we have other ways to get involved but those are to come
2: well we see uh through scripture that god asks us to give of our time our talents and our treasures and one of the outflows of giving of our treasures is through giving to his church And we do that out of uh, gratitude towards him and out of uh, the fact that Jesus has asked us to do that. And we wanna walk in obedience. So if you wanna give uh, here at Evangel, you can go to myevangel.church forward slash give and it'll give you all of the ways that you can do that. Well, thanks so much for joining us online friends. I hope that you have a great rest of your day today and we will hopefully see you again either in person on Sunday or online here.